Emily, welcome to the podcast. Firstly, congratulations on being awarded your doctorate. Before we talk about your research, can you tell us about, about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? Yeah, um, I've been at Newcastle for the past three years or so, working in the English department on the PhD with my um, fantastic supervisors, Anne Whitehead and Martin Dubois. Um, before that, I've, uh, I've done a few different things before coming to Newcastle. Um, but in terms of academia, I was at Edinburgh for my master's, and that's where I started developing ideas for the PhD. At the time, I was studying the celebrations for the anniversary of Shakespeare's death that took place in 1916, which involved looking at lots of newspapers and periodicals from the time. Um, and while doing that, I occasionally came across humorous references to the war, or um, I suppose references to humour in the war, which is where the idea for the PhD came from. When you talk about your research, um, what, what exactly does it cover? Yeah, um, so my, my focus was on British literature. I'd, I'd initially thought of maybe having a wider remit than this, um, but it became quite clear quite quickly that I wouldn't have uh, either the space or the time to be able to include much more. And the, the initial area of research was to investigate how much humour there is in written depictions of war experiences. So where did the humour appear? How much of there was it? And then I was also interested um, in what humour's function is, in where the effects are, in, sorry, in what the effects are of having it in portrayals of the war, what it was doing there. And finally, I also looked at how humorous texts about the war related to broader literary culture. I was interested in humour as historically based rather than something which is always the same. Um, and this took the form of investigating what kinds of humorous writing were popular before the outbreak of the conflict and seeing how they related to funny texts written about the war. And I think you know, these are particularly important subjects in relation to, to the First World War because it became pretty clear that humour is just all over the place in First World War literature. It appears everywhere. There's loads of it. And that really challenges the very strong perception that many people have that writing about the war is characterised by extreme solemnity. So when most people think about the First World War literature, they probably immediately think Wilfred Owen. There has been some growing awareness of the place of humour in, in the war, for example, with the Wipers Times television programme and so on. But there hasn't really yet been recognition just of how central humour was in war literature. So, Emily, to pick up on your point you made um, earlier, where did um, humour appear in First World War literature? Um, it appears all over the place. It was really, really extensive. Um, I tended to keep running out of space as I was writing, um, and there was quite a lot that I couldn't include. Um, it appears across a range of genres, which I've looked at. So I've uh, studied poetry, trench newspapers, short stories and the theatre. Um, and all of these different types of writing include quite a number of humorous examples. Um, so in poetry, for example, we get poets creating humorous moments in which, well, all sorts of ones, but just to give just one example, um, we see soldiers mistakenly being reported as dead when they aren't really dead. Edward de Stein writes a poem called Joseph Arthur Brown about that that opens um, the name of Joseph Arthur Brown by some profound mischance, was sent right through to GHQ as killed in action, France. And it kind of traces all the difficulties that this presents Joseph with. In trench newspapers, you know, as I say, these are becoming more, more well-known and they're pretty much entirely comic. I looked, for example, at sketches describing drilling exercises that go wrong in a very slapstick way when people start falling over each other and so on. Lots of texts about servicemen who are kind of comically hopeless and inept at being soldiers. In short stories, there are lots of short stories and a number of different subjects. I was focusing on service author stories, so stories written by men who were serving the forces as they wrote. And these were a mixture of fiction and reality, 
And they tended to have narrators or very often had narrators who were lighthearted and carefree and had humorous attitudes towards the, towards the war. There was examples of those in Punch, for example, as well as, you know, published volumes, published story collections. In the theatre, there's humour in plays by some quite well-known authors, such as George Bernard Shaw, John Goldsworthy, J.M. Barry, um, and also some lesser-known playwrights used humour as well. For example, in the genre of domestic farce, we get play by... F. Tennyson and Jesse and H.M. Howard called billeted, involving soldiers uh, being billeted at a domestic house and kind of chaos and shoes. And, and within those different genres, it's very much the case that humour appears in a variety of types of text. It isn't only the case that humour turns up in writing that we might think of as being generically comic or that we might label as comic. One of the things that I wanted to do was to push at the boundaries of what you could call humorous. And when you do that, you start to see elements of humour in some surprising places. It turns out, for example, that the very famous rap, um, Isaac Rosenberg's Break of Day in the Trenches, which you probably heard of, has similarities to rats that were a source of humour in trench newspaper poems. You, you start to see some quite interesting connections um, that reveal just how widespread humour was in literature about the war. How did humour vary depending on the audience it was aimed at? Oh, that's a really good question. I mean, so I think one of the bigger differences that I found was that it maybe wasn't so much audience as the writer's that mattered in terms of differences. So you don't tend to get civilian writers generally, as a very general rule, writing about you know humorous takes on violence at the front, for example. This seems to be very much in the domain of servicemen. And I think that's to do with issues of taste, really, about who is allowed to make that kind of joke, you know, who that experience belongs to. How did humour vary between, quote, official publications and unofficial sort of um, publications, for instance, trench newspapers done by soldiers without any real official sanction from their, their officers? Again, there's, there's maybe possibly slightly less difference than you might expect. So we think of trench newspapers in particular as having very strong um, satirical elements, for example. And that is true to an extent, but I would say that they're kind of, they're mischievous without being, you know, heavy, heavily, heavily critical of the nature of the war or the purposes of the war. So in fact, for example, you do get quite strong similarities between the representations that servicemen create of themselves in trench newspapers. This kind of self-deprecating pictures of themselves as being inept at being servicemen. Those correspond quite well with some service author stories that you see in uh, quote-unquote official publications, um, so professionally produced periodicals like Punch or, or like the newspapers. And how subversive or political did this some of this humour become and did it ever run up against censorship? Yeah, so as I say, the trench newspapers... Um, it's subversive, perhaps surprisingly for us, because we think of the war as having very, very strict censorship. So there is a lot of mockery of officers, of conditions, of food, you name it, it's mocked. On the other hand, as I say, I don't think it's, um, there's, there's much sense that the war as a whole, the war's purposes, the nature of the war is really questioned. Um, in terms of censorship for, for trench newspapers, it's very unclear how much there was, how strict it was. Officially, they were meant to be censored by commanding officers, I think. Um, but it's, there's very, very little evidence to see actually how much of that went on. You do get much more evidence about censorship in relation to the theatre because this is, there's an archive at the British Library 
of all the census reports. So plays had to be submitted to be licensed by the Lord Chamberlain's office. And the British Library holds all of the documents that they that they wrote in response to the plays that were submitted. So there you do get more of a sense of what was going on. Within the theatre, it tended to be the case that theatre managers wouldn't necessarily submit plays for licensing that they knew would be rejected for a license. And that would mean that plays would go elsewhere. They'd be performed privately in order to avoid censorship. So it was occasionally the case that when they did that, they would then sort of get a kind of censorship from the audience if the audience reacted badly. There is, there's a plague um, by Sewell Collins called The Conscienceless Objector, right? So, and that was quite a common pun to say that conscientious objectors were conscienceless objectors. What happens in this is that we, it's very much the stereotype of the kind of the effeminate conscientious objector. Um, it's, it depicts a man named Spratt going to a tribunal to try and get military uh, exemption for military service. The stage directions describe him as mincing, as having a high effeminate voice. And when asked to state his profession, he says that he's a cucumber polisher. And I was quite surprised that that got through the census. But interestingly, in the census report, censor is mainly concerned that the panel at the tribunal who are making the decision shouldn't be mocked too much. So that kind of shows you the direction of where censorship would be. Although the censor does also perhaps have, there's a sense of discomfort with the representation of Spratt as a homosexual, um, because that was a subject that wasn't allowed on the stage officially. Um, so there was some slight nervousness around that as well. So what was the role of humour and how did it help or hinder soldier morale? So humour in the war um, hasn't been much talked about, but when it is mentioned, it, it's generally assumed to have been about helping morale and about providing a source of emotional relief during the war for soldiers and civilians. And there's been some work done on that in relation to trench newspapers in particular. I think that's not at all an unreasonable assumption, um, though I think that there is probably more room for researching evidence of the actual emotional effects of humour, maybe by looking at soldiers' personal writing, diaries and letters and so on. In my research, I've, I've moved away from those kinds of psychological and emotional explanations because, as I say, those explanations are ones that are currently around at the moment. So what I've been interested in are the ways in which humour adds to the representation of the war, the ways in which humour might add to the impression that we are given of war experience. And there are, there are kind of a few different ways in which this could happen. So, for example, it can be the case that techniques for inviting humour can also feed into creating certain pictures of the war. Um, in trench newspapers, uh, when we get descriptions of servicemen being a bit inept, this is about articulating a kind of heroism, for example, that contrasts how we might normally think of the nature of heroism. It's about a kind of soldierliness that's the cheeky, trappy, stoical type of soldierliness. In service author stories, we get quite a similar thing, with narrators having a very carefree, insouciant, light-hearted attitude to the war, and their humour, uh, again, makes them seem more heroic in the, in the face of uh, great danger. Um, and in the theatre, we get, you know, the domestic fear, for example, portrayed in a humorous way, with soldiers being billeted in people's houses, and the kind of the impression given of the war is that it's another sort of domestic disruption that might have been um, a feature of plays before the war as well. And kind of just coming back to this idea of censorship within the theatre, it seems to be the case that humour sometimes allowed playwrights perhaps to get away with treating topics that perhaps they wouldn't otherwise have gotten away with including. So it's almost about what they were allowed to represent as well, um, with humorous plays being thought of as, as less dangerous and serious ones. So that means, for example, that we get the sense of writing about a socialist character in one of John Galsworthy's plays. And the censor says that he's only 
a humorous socialist and therefore by implication less worrying to the censorship that being said at the same time the censors do seem uh, occasionally suspicious that jokes might be used to, to say something a bit cheeky as well. So where did humour come from? Did it sort of come from the civilian, I suppose, tradition that, uh, that, pe- that people grew up with in terms of, of, the, of the vaudeville and, and uh, musical? Or was it very much contextual to the situation people found themselves in? Yeah, so what my research uh, kept showing, actually, was that humour appeared in writing about the war um, in ways that very much continued from humorous writing that was popular before the outbreak of the war, or indeed um, from civilian culture, if you, if you want to put it that way, during the war. For instance, uh, we get lots of humorous limericks about violence in the war, and these are kind of products and reflections of the fact that limericks and nonsense more generally were very popular in humorous magazines before 1914. Trench newspapers as a whole very much reflected uh, popular comic magazines that were professionally produced, uh, most famously Punch. Service author stories owed quite a lot to the tradition of war correspondence that was around before the war. So not the kind of war correspondent that we might think of as journalists today, but um, this would be someone who wrote reports that were partially, sometimes partially fictionalised and, and that often presented the writer as a kind of dashing, gentlemanly adventurer. Theatre does uh, become more politically conservative during the war, um, with most writers sort of including some of the more rebellious writers supporting patriotic narratives of the conflict. Um, but here we do still see Shaw, for example, retaining some elements of his tendency to push the limits of what was acceptable to say on stage. We do still see J.M. Barry very much keeping up with a mixture of light-hearted humour and whimsy and some mild satire. And we do see continuations of genres like musical comedy, domestic farce. So I guess the important point now is that, that there isn't a sense that established kinds of humorous writing were inadequate to the task of depicting, of depicting the war. And in that sense, my work adds to research that's already been done that emphasises continuity rather than rupture when it comes to understanding wartime culture. And did humour vary across different regions, classes and other aspects of the United Kingdom? Yeah, so I haven't found massive senses of regional or class variation when it comes to actual styles of humour. And nor interestingly did I find kind of a discernible darkening of humour as the war progressed. Sometimes the assumption with French newspapers has been that they reflect the, the ethos of public school magazines. But actually, in some cases, they, they weren't written by officers. Um, and this doesn't seem to make a huge amount of difference to their contents. That being said, um, this kind of lack of difference that I found really could well be due to do with a lack of evidence. So it, it isn't always clear who wrote French newspapers, for instance, and some of them in editorial stress that they're for both officers and men in a way that suggests that maybe they weren't naturally seen as being for kind of both classes of people. What is quite interesting in terms of senses of place um, is not that there's an emphasis necessarily on different regions, but that you do get a lot of discussion about the idea of British humour. So journalists writing in newspapers and periodicals argue that the British have particularly good, well-developed senses of humour and that actually this is a war-winning quality. Um, And and that idea is repeated in some editorials and trench newspapers as well. And what sort of stereotypes are represented in the humour of the time? I'm sort of thinking about, you know, sort of the grousing Tommy Atkins, the plucky Cockney, the effeminate conscientious objector that you've already uh, alluded to. Yeah, so uh, Tommy Atkins is... Uh, very much present. This, as, you, as you've kind of said, this is a figure of a serviceman being hysterical, amused, grumbling about conditions. 
And he was made famous by Rudyard Kipling in Barrack Room Ballads. They were originally published in the 1890s, but they proved popular during the Great War. Tim Kendall, in his anthology of war poetry, points out that 29,000 copies of Barrack Room Ballads were sold in 1915 alone. And we see Tommy very much reflected in the ideas about British humour expressed in the press. He's presented as kind of the epitome of the British soldier taking an amused stance to the war. Um, we see him in trench newspapers, servicemen you know, actually referring to themselves as Tommy. And in terms of, yeah, the, the effeminate conscientious objective as well is, is very much a feature. It's really some quite kind of nasty satire about um, that, that figure, yeah. And finally, where can people learn more about your research? Um, well, I am hoping either to turn the thesis into a book or to break it up uh, into a series of articles. So I guess watch this space for those. Um, you can kind of see other stuff that I'm up to with the publications on my personal website, which is ecanderson.wordpress.com. Emily, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.